Welcome to Season 2 of the Mindful Literacy Podcast with your host, Dr. Jessica Bennett. Our mission is to provide one-on-one and small group literacy tutoring to children with dyslexia or who are at risk for reading failure. One of the driving forces behind creating Mindful Literacy Columbus was a social justice focus. We want to make needed education services accessible to all. The board is in the process of researching social determinants of health, such as family income, access to community-based resources, social support, language and literacy, and access to information. It is our vision to create a center where children can have access to high-quality tutoring, irrespective of family income. In our mind's eye, this center would also be a place where adults can study our written language together and where parents can find support. Listener support is paramount to how much we are able to support kids in our community. Thank you so much for your support. Here are three ways you can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. You can share this podcast and you can like and follow Mindful Literacy Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. Pause this podcast right now and go like and follow before you forget. Our Facebook is mindful.literacy.columbus. Our Instagram is mindful.literacy.cbus. Make sure to share posts to your feed and tag your friends. You can also volunteer. There are four opportunities to volunteer with Mindful Literacy Columbus. Even if you don't live in Columbus, first, you could join the Grant Writers Guild. Writers are needed. Second, you can join our summer camp in August. Counselors are needed. Third, we need volunteers for our first annual conference for kids and grown-ups. Even coordinators are needed. This event will be held in August. Finally, you can volunteer to be a mentor and editor for Beehive Press. We especially need high school and college-age volunteers who enjoy studying English or graphic design. If you would like more information about volunteering, please send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. You can also email our Director of Impact at Megan, that is M-E-G-H-A-N, at mindfulliteracypractice.org. Thanks again for your support. And we hope you enjoy this episode of the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Jessica Garrett Mills is an academic coach with On Track Academic Coaching. She works with middle, high school, college, graduate, and junior faculty members. She earned a PhD in education and psychology and a master's in developmental psychology, both from the University of Michigan. She also has degrees in psychology and education from the Ohio State University. She's an internationally published researcher on the topic of academic motivation. She explores what motivates people to succeed in academic tasks and what social supports encourage students. Enjoy this conversation with Jessica Garrett Mills. Jessica, welcome to the Mindful Literacy Podcast. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you for a few reasons. One, you're an executive functioning coach. And two, you work with kids who are in middle school through college age and even grad school. So I'm really interested to talk about that age group, the age range that you work with, and also just to talk about executive functioning because we bring it up a lot in education. And I think ADHD is a really common diagnosis that people have. And as soon as you say ADHD, then the next thing out of your mouth is executive functioning. And so I want to hear from you, you know, what is executive functioning and how do you coach it? Okay. Well, those are great questions. Executive functioning. I think of executive functioning as the skills that allow one to get stuff done. There are lots of great metaphors that people use here, like executive functioning skills are the air traffic controller of the brain, or they're the mom of the brain, or they're the boss of the brain. And I think that's where we get the executive functioning label. Executive functioning skills rely on three main brain functions, working memory, and that's the ability to keep many balls in the air while using just one. And I can give examples of these if folks want. Self-control or inhibitory control, the ability to not do the thing that you kind of want to do right now, or the ability to make yourself do the thing that you don't want to do right now. And then flexibility. And this is one that we often don't think of, but um, the ability to switch gears, the ability to go with the flow when things aren't going how you think they ought to go. People think of that for sure as an aspect of autism, but they often don't think of that as an aspect of ADHD. And it definitely is that student that digs their heels in and just, it has to go the way that it always goes. And for teachers who say, you know, we're not doing story time until after whatever, or the high school teacher that says, actually, there was a test today, but we have to finish this lab and the test is going to be tomorrow. Some students can roll with that and some students really struggle and that would throw off their whole day. Parents see this at home for sure. If they change up the rules or if it's like, uh, say, winter break and the schedule is off, that affects students with executive functioning challenges really, really greatly, more so than I think we acknowledge. So that's executive functioning skills in a nutshell. It encompasses all the sorts of things that allow us to do the things that we don't necessarily want to do, not do the things that we really want to do, and Keep a lot of things going at once, which is the reality of a modern life, and then go with the flow. Awesome. I love those definitions. I think those uh, keeping things in a system is always helpful for me. For everyone. I mean, the interesting thing about executive functioning skills is there are those, it's, it's a spectrum too, and there are those that struggle mightily. And then there are the rest of us who struggle a little bit. And then there are those people who just are super on the ball and they probably have a secretary. So <laughs> they're not really the one that's on. Maybe the secretary is the one with the excellent executive functioning skills. But the modern world, I mean, we're expected to monitor our cell phone, monitor our email, monitor. I mean, I have young kids at home, monitor what's going on with them. This year has been like an executive functioning skills, long-term Olympic event. And it is just hard. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think early on in the pandemic, I was thinking, wow, I'm getting a front row seat to my kids' executive functioning skills right now. 
And then maybe six months later, by August or September, I was like, my executive functioning skills are on the fritz right now. I can't (laughs) even, I can't keep all the balls in the air. I can't even keep one in the air. Yes. And we all struggle more when with these skills, especially, well, all of them, I would say, when we're tired, ding, ding, or when we're stressed. Yes. So whatever skills we had are probably taxed beyond right now. Okay. So I'm wondering, so you just brought up being tired. I, that definitely resonates with me personally, but also I see it in kids. (laughs) So I feel like one of the things with executive functioning, if you know that you struggle with executive functioning or a child struggles is looking at getting basic needs met. Is that something that you coach? It is. That's one of the first questions I ask about sleep. I ask about exercise and I ask about diet and A lot of the families I work with are on top of the diet piece. Though some of them, honestly, they, especially the teenagers, you know, the parents are not in charge of what the teenagers are eating most of the day. And my students will say, I had a granola bar for breakfast. And it's like, yeah, well, that's like a sugar bomb. And that lasted you until second period. And then you crashed. So sleep for sure. All this research on underslept brains shows that the outcomes look almost identical to that of an ADHD brain. So if you are chronically underslept, that's one of the first things. Like, I'm a big fan of medication for ADHD when it's appropriate, but I would always want to make sure that a student was sleeping appropriately before you went there because that can that can make a big difference. And some students have legitimate sleep disorders or sleep apnea or something. And then when that gets fixed, the executive functioning issues are no longer at play. Now that's rare. I mean, I think ADHD is is a very common diagnosis for good reason. I mean, I think it's commonly correctly diagnosed, but there are those students for whom sleep is the bigger issue or at least a, a big part of the issue. And can you run through the numbers on sleep through the ages and stages of development? Uh, no, no, I cannot. Um. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just thinking like, I think for elementary age kids, it's 10 to 12, but then I didn't know for adolescents if it is more or less. Well, I mean, there's a broad range. There's a lot of individual differences, but for my adolescents, and I'm talking not like 13-year-olds who need probably more like nine or more. But for a 15, 16, 17-year-old, you know, someone getting out of that like extreme teenage body, growth sports and all that, they probably need eight and three quarters pushing nine hours. Now, do any of my clients get that much sleep? No. If I can get them eight and a half hours, I'm thrilled. And we, we work on sleep hygiene. We work on systems for getting to the place where their body is in bed and their brain is relaxed. And that's where a lot of your mindfulness comes in and getting to a place where they haven't looked at their screen for ideally an hour before bed. But if even I can get them not to take their phone to bed, that's often a win. So with students with executive functioning challenges, it's funny because they often get, they're so distracted that they forget to go to sleep. Or their brain is really racing and they have a hard time shutting down once they're in bed. So even younger kids whose parents actually get them in bed with the lights out, they might still have trouble powering down their brain. So just like with a three-year-old, how we do routines and rituals to help the body come to understand that now it is time to go to sleep. I talk to my teenagers and even my college students, maybe especially my college students, about like what kind of ritual 
what kind of routine would at least half an hour would make you feel like, and now I'm going to bed. And a lot of times, you know, we're already doing this stuff. You're already brushing your teeth and washing your face. So are there a couple more steps you can add? Listen to a podcast, um, not looking at the screen, or read something kind of boring, or do a puzzle, or do some drawing, or whatever. You know, I work with whatever they're willing to give me there. And we come up with a half an hour little ritual to power down their life day. That can be helpful. And then if I can get them eight and a half hours, college students too, I mean, they're starting to have more adult-like brains, but they probably need eight, eight and a half hours. I mean, when I was a college student, I needed more than that. So again, individual differences come into play. But for the most part, most of my clients are not getting enough sleep and are not getting restorative sleep because they're looking at their screens up until the last minute. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of no screens. In our house, it's after dinner for my little ones because I know personally, like it just, it amps, it just amps you up. And like the blue light and it's just a signaling to your brain that it's not time to go to sleep. But I mean, I am empathetic with parents. It's really challenging. Your kids are doing their homework on their computer by requirement. And it's 10 o'clock and they're still doing their math homework. And they really care about their math homework. Let's assume they care about their math homework. And the parent is saying, I want you to choose sleep over finishing your math homework. That is hard. So we have to back it up. We have to, my job is to collaboratively work with that student and say, I understand that you are working late and you are working hard. What can we do earlier in the afternoon to help you be more efficient? Sometimes efficient means not choosing video games, but sometimes they really are working long. They're just not working efficiently because they zone out or they have trouble keeping themselves on task because of those executive functioning challenges. So I help them get more efficient. And then those, maybe those with slow processing speed or those who really truly have that much homework, then we can talk about choices that we're making in terms of courses. We can talk about accommodations and maybe parents would ask their accommodations that a student could get. Like if a student is routinely spending two hours an evening on their math homework, the teacher needs to know about that. And most teachers I know are like, that is not the intention here. So sometimes teachers are willing to say, set a timer, spend X number of minutes on your math homework. Let's say it's an hour or 45 minutes or whatever is appropriate for that age. And then when you're done, draw a line, put the time, maybe have a parent initial if we're worried about taking advantage and that's it, you're done. And then the teacher can help help the student understand, like if that happens routinely and they're only getting halfway through their math homework, what's going on there is... Do they not understand the the system for solving math problems? The teacher can probe a little bit and find out what's going on. Or maybe they are just very slow and that's okay too. And if after 45 minutes they have gotten what they need from that homework, then great, mission accomplished. I'm so excited to hear you say that because I've been saying that from the beginning of the pandemic, watching kids on screens all day and then having to do homework. I'm like, no, this should not be taking more than the allotted time. Definitely talk to the teacher. Yes. Yes. Because teachers are in the best position to know how long that homework should be taking, whether or not there was time given in class that maybe the student didn't use appropriately. And then that's a different kind of issue to be worked through. The teacher might know like, yeah, that was a really hard one. 
Every student spent a lot of time on that homework because that was a hard one, you know, and then, okay. But that's a different scenario than like, well, that should have been a 15 minute homework and it took this student two hours and something's going on. You know, is it a matter of knowing the concept? Is it a matter of being able to demonstrate the procedure or was it a matter of you didn't use your time wisely? Exactly. Yeah. Or all three. And then we need to work on, for a lot of my students, it's an inhibitory control challenge. They just, especially if it's boring or they're tired or they're frustrated, that frustration tolerance is an enormous hurdle. They just struggle to stay focused through even a half an hour homework assignment. And that is not necessarily, that's something to work with the teacher on, but that is where I think executive functioning coaching can really come into play because I can help students work on that frustration tolerance, build that muscle. We can talk about working in short bursts. I have a lot of my students, if they're willing, use timers. And we, sometimes with my middle school students who are really struggling with self-control and focus, we work in five minute bursts and we do or four minutes, you know, four minutes of math and then a minute off and then four minutes of math and then a brain break and then four minutes and then a brain break. I also, I just did a professional development for teachers on what brain breaks for older kids can look like. First of all, they don't want to call them brain breaks because that's what they've been calling them since kindergarten, but how we can get our students to really take a break, which is going to help them come back and focus. The gold standard for a break for any kid, but especially for high school kids who don't do this naturally, is something physical, something that's outside, which is hard in December, January, February, but not impossible, and something that is not screen-based. That's, that's hard. And if you can get them to do a yoga video inside, that's not outside and it's not off the screen, but it is moving and that's a win. Yeah. I mean, so much of what you are talking about is mindfulness and knowing what you need and how to get yourself what you need. I mean, self-care is sleep hygiene, nutrition, exercise, and, you know, these brain breaks. Well, what do you call them for older kids? Taking a break. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because older kids, high school kids are like allergic to cutesiness. Yes. So just call it what it is. You're just taking a break. Take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Mindful Literacy Practice. Mindful Literacy Practice is the sister company to Mindful Literacy Columbus. We are a private tutoring and professional development company whose mission is to build a strong learning community that cultivates literacy and mindfulness practices with children, their families, and their teachers. Frequent and consistent tutoring is the key to fluency growth, no matter where your child is on the learning continuum, from special education to gifted education and everywhere in between. All elementary kids need to practice oral reading fluency and math facts. Mindful Literacy Practice offers affordable, high-quality, evidence-based methodology combined with precision teaching data tracking in both reading and math. For just 10 minutes a session, three to five days a week, it is not uncommon for us to see fluency rates double in the course of 10 to 12 weeks. Want to improve the speed in which your child can read and or do math facts? Mindful Literacy Fluency Programs. Improve what you measure. Practice, measure, improve, repeat. Listeners of this podcast can use code FLUENCY50 for their first registration. 
mindfulliteracypractice.org forward slash fluency forward slash. So then just understanding what a restorative, meaningful break is for that person's mind body, I think is the lifelong goal. I mean, this is all part trained yoga meditation teacher. This is, I practice really hard doing it, even in like CrossFit, you know, like work hard, rest hard, work hard, rest hard. And it takes a tremendous amount of yes. self-discipline to allow yourself, you know, we talk about attention training a lot, but there also needs to be relaxation training. I think particularly for those brains that do have trouble powering down, like you said. And I think that's one of the ADHD superpowers is the ability to hyper-focus on something that's really interesting and just kind of like being a powerhouse. (laughs) But that has a dark side. (laughs) Yeah, right. So to teach those brains how to, like, I'll just call it relaxation training. Exactly. Yeah. And oftentimes if it is, and when I say active, I don't necessarily mean like running or exercise. I just mean inhabiting their body because so much of what we're asking them to do in a typical school day, but times a hundred on a Zoom school day, it's on their computer. It's living in a screen. It is like divorced from their body. And I want them to take a break where they like get back in their body. Yeah. And that's yoga. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yoking your mind in your body. And I think too, just like physical posturing, I think like the amount, you know, you talked earlier about before we started recording this about using a microphone so that it's easier for people to pay attention to your voice. But I think about kids who are doing 100% distance learning. So their shoulders are maybe hunched down. Their their heads are literally like leaning towards the screen. And then they have to do homework like that for hours on end. And I think, oh, I just want to like relax those shoulders back and down. Right. I know. Where's your core? Where's your core? Okay. There it is. <laughs> I was just talking to a kid the other day. He's a junior in high school and, you know, he came to his Zoom meeting with me with his hood up and leaned back, slouched down. And after a while I said, I just, I just want to tell you what I'm seeing right here. I'm wondering how any oxygen is getting to your brain at all. <laughs> like, do me a favor. Let's just try this for one second. Sit up straight, put your shoulders back and down, take a deep breath. And do you think you could do that once at the beginning of a class? And I always start with these teeny, 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 teeny steps because that's where they're willing to meet me. Even a teenager who's too cool for school can still like, okay, I'm going to take one deep breath. A lot of my students are self-aware enough to know that sitting in one place all day long is not good for them. And then we talk about alternative seating, um, sometimes even sitting on the floor. A lot of them have a yoga ball bouncing around the house somewhere, wobble stools, a cushion on your seat, changing your desk position so that you have a view out the window if that is helpful. It's not helpful for every kid. Working at the kitchen table for one class and then moving to your room. Because I'm telling you, many of my students, they literally do not leave their desk except to go to the bathroom. Sometimes they even have a mom bringing them lunch, which God love moms, but they need to move their bodies, helping them become self-aware enough to know that they need something different and then helping them kind of problem solve what might be comfortable for you, what might be tolerable for you, what might you be willing to experiment with. 
that's a lot of what coaching is. Yeah. So teaching them self-autonomy and self-awareness, it sounds like. Yeah. And you know, when you say that, that reminds me for my students, especially my high school students, a lot of what I'm doing is with an eye towards what comes next, college or whatever post-secondary goals they have. And one of the major predictors of who is going to be successful in that post-secondary transition, especially for students with disabilities or on an IEP, it's self-determination and self-advocacy skills. So being able to understand what you need, set a course, get there, and have the skills to support you in doing that, or at least know what to ask for from others. I mean, that's a, that is a skill, that building that team for yourself to support those tools and to support the weaknesses that you might have. That kind of self-determination and then self-advocacy is the number one thing. That's the number one gift we can give students. Maybe especially those with disabilities, but probably all students. I mean, that's, that's the goal. And that starts not senior year of high school, not freshman year of high school, but much earlier, especially with students with disabilities. But it's hard, right? Because you know, the targets are constantly changing and getting harder. And I'm wondering how, you know, because you work with kids, you have such a range from middle school through grad school. How do you see, you know, the changes that bodies go through during adolescence affecting their executive functioning? Yeah, that emotional control piece is really hard in adolescence because there's so much more emotion to control. And then, I mean, they also go through this period. This is not necessarily biological, though there may be a piece of it that is, where they don't want to hear it from their parents anymore. And they, a lot of times I tell my parents, I'm not telling your students things that they haven't already heard from you. It just sounds different coming from me. And this is a place where sometimes teachers can step in, especially if it's a teacher that has already clicked with a student. The student might be willing to hear it from a teacher when they were not willing to hear it from a parent. But at the same time, when students are going through that challenging time, 12, 13, 14 years old, they also still, in a lot of ways, have, especially my ADHD kids who are three, two or three years behind in their executive functioning skills, they still have sort of a childhood level functioning when it comes to executive functioning. So it is very challenging with those 13, 14, 15 year olds, 12, 13, 14, you know, that, that very tricky age at the same time, if you can click with them, they're still, they are open. They are open to so much if you can click with them. And I don't click with every student, but those that I do click with, I feel like I can make a really big difference for them because they're so open to hearing it from someone that they trust. And then as we get older, I mean, a lot of executive functioning, a lot of these ADHD weaknesses are due to low dopamine in the brain. And that evens itself out a little bit. Like we just naturally get better at these skills as we get older. So by the time I'm dealing, even, you know, like, let's say, let's say ADHD was measured in on a one, two, or three, even a level three ADHD person in grad school is going to be more capable of self-managing than a level three, 13 year old. So things do get better. If we do nothing, things will, maturation will help. 
But at the same time, uh, demands on a grad student are far greater than the demands on a 13-year-old. And so when I talk with parents with a middle school student and they say, look, this is this stuff's just going to get harder, they are right. And teachers know this. They do a lot of hand-holding in middle school, but then a lot of times that shift to ninth grade, teachers are no longer breaking down big projects into tiny baby steps for the students. They have to do some of that on their own. Again, that's not a biological thing. You were asking about biological things. That's more of a social construct. But I wish that in eighth grade, a lot of teachers do do this, but I wish every teacher was thinking about that transition and starting to take those training wheels off for students and starting to externalize the planning process to middle school. Teachers are doing a lot of these executive functioning tasks for students appropriately, but maybe not telling students what they're doing and maybe not shifting the locus of control so that the students have to make the timeline for when their rough draft is due, or at least fill in the timeline for when their rough draft is due. So that scaffolding needs to start to come down in eighth grade, I think. That makes sense. I mean, it's really teaching the student or having them come up with a system that works for them and then executing it. So it takes a lot of practice. Yep. And and some guidance. And in eighth grade, a lot of times teachers are still saying like, this is how we do it in this classroom. This is, you use your folder, you put your turn in work here, you put your new work here. And that's great. I love for students to have a very clear system, but at some point they need, and then in ninth grade, there's no system. It's just like, do it as you will. And they're like, well, I don't have my own system. So at some point we need to more slowly lower that scaffolding. So the student gets to try out a system. And then if it fails, there's still someone there with a safety net. And for my students, that safety net needs to be there longer and the scaffolding needs to be lowered more slowly. I think it's really important just to circle back on what you talked about. Having a trusting relationship is number one of importance. And I think too, like I think about adolescents really being, really coming into their own and there's a different level of self-consciousness that wasn't necessarily there in elementary school. And I wonder how that, in some ways, it makes things easier because they know they need to, they know they need to do something different to be more independent. But I, in some ways, I wonder if their self-consciousness makes it worse, as in they're kind of finding maladaptive coping strategies or not coping yeah. Again, in, in the middle school years, a lot of my students don't want to have ADHD. They don't want to be different. And a lot of times they don't want to take their medication because again, it makes them different or it makes them less outgoing maybe, or that's the way they feel. So helping them kind of find their power, come to understand that this is how they're built and they're, there are good things and bad things and their job is to step up and own who they are. And, and this part is crucial, their parents will only step back once they step up. And that is usually the motivational linchpin for a lot of my students because they want desperately to be more independent, but they don't yet have the tools to support their independence. And I say like, let's get you those tools. Let's work together to help you step up And I promise you that when your parent sees you stepping up 
they will feel more comfortable stepping back. And if they aren't, then I can be a, a liaison um, and help the parent think through, like, what do you need to see for, in order to give your student a little bit of a longer leash? By 15 years old, these parents have been through it with a lot of the, with their kids. You know, they have seen ups and downs and they are often nervous to give a little more space, give a little more independence. And I get that. So it's working on both sides of the relationship there. What your child does after high school is one of the most exciting and most important decisions they will make, but it's also one of the most stressful. This decision not only impacts your future, but a college education costs about the equivalent of a house these days. Student loan debt is a trillion dollar problem. And to make things even more confusing, there are thousands of schools out there and hundreds of things to study. How is your child supposed to know what's right for them? We're here to help. We are in the college planning experts. Our college planning advisors work one-on-one with your team to help them discover their very best path, taking all their special circumstances, wants, and needs into account. Whether your child is an athlete or has learning differences, our advisors are trained to help your child chart their very best educational path towards their brightest future. We've helped more than a thousand students find their very best path and have saved their families more than $60 million in higher education costs. Let us do the same for your family. Visit incollegeplanning.com to learn more. I think about, you know, the word coach, and it's really having someone there by your side whispering, you can do it, or just change this one little thing and practice that for a while, you know? So I think that's really powerful. Yep. And maybe also saying to the parent, like, let them try let them fail a little bit, but with a safety net and also reassuring the parent that the stumbles are, are part of the learning process, reassuring the, the student that the stumbles are part of the learning process, and then also reminding them how far they've come. I keep a sheet on all my students in their folder where I talk about like strategies they've tried that have succeeded and in, in what context. And when I feel them struggling or I feel them sort of losing confidence, then we we look over that sheet and we look at how far they've come. And that can be really reassuring. So it's knowing like sometimes I feel like I'm both good cop and bad cop where I have to push, but not too much. And a lot of my students are coping with anxiety alongside of whatever else is going on. So that's a fine line between when you're pushing too hard and then they shut down or not hard enough and then they're not making progress. So doing that dance with them and figuring out how far can you push yourself and when do you need to back off and allow yourself a little bit of grace and paying attention to your body. Like it can be uncomfortable to be frustrated. It can be really uncomfortable to work really hard on something that's very hard, but, but can you sit with that discomfort a little bit longer? And then when is it too, when have you gone over the edge and now we need to take a, not a brain break or whatever we're calling it, just a break. I feel like that is the art of coaching because that is a delicate, that's a very fine line, but helping them figure that out for themselves. That is what growing up is about. Like, when are you pushing hard enough? And when do you need to back off and give yourself a break? That's a life skill. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's so many things going on with that process, but too, having your, teaching them to pay attention to their own meta dialogue. Like tell yourself you're doing a good job, like, and not to get so 
self-critical and cutting out sort of the negative self-talk. You talk a lot about growth mindset. Yep, that's definitely sort of a, a running thread. A lot of my clients are twice exceptional, which means that they are both gifted and have, my clients anyway, have a, are gifted and have executive functioning challenges. And for a lot of those gifted kids, you know, they've been told from day one, not maybe not day one, but you're bright, you're smart, you're gifted. They know that. That's a part of their identity. So then to struggle in school is, it's really a big ego threat. If I'm struggling, then who am I? Am I not smart? Am I anything? And working with them to understand that struggling is growing and that is good. And working hard through your challenges is what it is to be grown up. I mean, that is what it is to be mature and to be in charge and to be the captain of your own ship. And one of my clients the other day, he said something like, "Um, I've decided that I'm the king of my castle. I love that. (laughs) I mean, he was kind of joking. He's a a high school senior. He was kind of joking. But I think he also wasn't. Like, yeah, these choices that you're making affect you. And if you choose to push through the discomfort of not knowing or the the discomfort of recognizing that you're you have some weaknesses and we have to figure ways around if you choose to push through that on the other side the world is waiting for you you know he's headed to college and understanding that the buck stops with him is the number one thing i want him to go to college with because that means that he's going to say i'm struggling i need to go to math tutoring i'm struggling i got to go talk to disability services and see if they have any support for me. Nobody's going to do that for you in in college. Nobody's coming for you. You have to go avail yourself of all the services that are available. And recognizing that you're struggling and going and getting help are executive functions. <laughs> so it's really hard for my kids. And I want them to be able to just, I want that to be so easy for them. Like, oh, I'm struggling. I need to go get help. I'm struggling. I have to go to office hours. Like, boom, that's just automatic. Of course, that's what I do. If they can go to college with that, again, I was saying that self-advocacy piece is like such a key skill for succeeding post-secondarily. And if they can say, I don't know how to study for this test. I'm going to go see my professor. If that's just automatic for them, then I feel like they're going to succeed. I think that is great advice. And I think about some of older students I'm working with. And it, it, when you break things down in a simple way like that, it's manageable. Okay. I have to ask for help when I'm feeling that in, inner turmoil. Okay. Well, I can do that. It's almost like that mindfulness piece of recognizing and not shying away from is going to be the hard part for a lot of kids, I think. Yep. And that asking for help is part of owning it. Like that is the win. Asking for help is not a weakness. I mean, that's sort of a cliche, right? That asking for help is a strength, but getting them to really believe that is key. A lot of my students go to college and they, they don't want to register with the office of disability services because they feel like they just, they just want to leave that behind. They just want to leave their ADHD behind or their autism behind or their anxiety behind, but get them into a different mindset where it's like, no, the strength is going in with all of your resources lined up. You've got your pencil sharpened. You've got your disability services paperwork filed. You've got your, your notes ready to take. You've got all your textbooks. Like every, all your ducks in a, are in a row. And that's what, that's what a strong student does. A strong student doesn't wait until they're struggling and then 
they go to disability services and try and register. That's hard. Yeah. And I think if you are uh, somebody who never went to college or you never needed to access those services as a college student, you don't necessarily know to tell your kid how to access those services or that they're even available. And there are so many more services available now. Thank goodness. Like every campus has a math lab and a writing lab, and they obviously have a disability services office because it's required and there are accommodations available. But that's a whole, even if you were like an on the ball parent in, as for your high school student, you might not know the system and things change dramatically once there are no more IEPs. You're no longer under the IDEA. Now you're Americans with Disabilities Act. And so basically what that means is there's no longer IEPs. There's only 504s, though they're not called 504s in college. So the kinds of accommodations available are, are very different. It's a whole nother can of worms. And you are no longer, as a parent, you're no longer a part of it. It's your student. So if your student is struggling, you don't call up a professor. You don't call up Office of Disability Services. You can, but they're going to say, have your student come in. And if you haven't prepared your student to be able to say, this is my disability, this is what I need to be able to be successful here. If they don't know what their disability means for them or how it impacts them, they're not ready to go to college. And that could save so much time and frustration and money. And sometimes it's a case of, well, it's okay if they're not ready. Yeah. How do we get them ready? They don't have to be a traditional student. Yeah. I think a gap year for a student with executive functioning control. I mean, I I said a few minutes ago that maturation carries a lot of the weight here. And if we can just give our 17-year-olds one more year of maturation, doing something meaningful, not sitting around playing video games for a year, but like working a job that's hard and they kind of don't like, or having a really awesome internship experience, or taking a class or two at a community college while also working, or whatever whatever their gap year experience might be, that can be really powerful. And it's no longer stigmatized. Lots of students do gap years. Boy, if we're seeing anything about the college market for this coming fall, this 2000. 21, 22 freshman class, a lot of them took a gap year because this last year was like obviously such a disaster. So a gap year is definitely not stigmatized and it can be, you have to do it right. I mean, talk to your college counselor, have your student talk to their college counselor about how to do this right. You probably want to apply first before the gap, apply for college first before the gap year, et cetera. I mean, there's some, there's a way to do it right, but it can be, it can be a really smart move. I wish I had done it. <laughs> I know. So I should dream about that. Like, what would I have done with my gap year? Hmm. I wonder if I can do a gap year now. <laughs> no kidding. I think I would have went to pick fruit in Australia. <laughs> also, I don't know. Do they have mosquitoes in Australia? <laughs> oh, they have all sorts of critters. <laughs> Make sure to save the day for two fun events in 2021 in partnership with the Final Third Foundation Mindful Literacy Columbus presents 2021 Summer Writing Camp. Kids entering 3rd to 7th grade will have the opportunity to be a part of this investive writing camp. Save the date for this week of August 8th. Email megan at mindfulliteracypractice.org. 
For more information, make sure to mention that you heard about this camp from the podcast and enter a drawing to win 50% of the camp tuition. First Annual Mindful Literacy Columbus Conference for Kids and Their Grown-Ups. After this conclusion of the writing camp, we will hold a community celebration. This will include kids showcasing their work, art, music, yoga, food, and high-quality professional presentations for both teachers and parents. Teachers will have the opportunity to learn CEUs. The conference, which will be held on Saturday, August 15, 2021, will serve as a fundraiser for a non-profit organization. We will also currently accepting presentation proposals from teachers and professionals in the community. Please email Stacey, S-T-A-C-E-Y, at org. To receive more information about the conference and or the submit of a presentation proposal. Okay, well, this has been great. I want to just re- recap the, what is executive functioning. And you said it's working memory, it's self-control and flexibility. And I'm wondering, just because I have my intervention specialist brain on and I'm thinking, wow, these sound like three goals. And then how would I break them down into objectives? You know, And I'm thinking, then how would I measure those? I'm also thinking, you. I'm sure that in isolated, in the context of, real life experiences. At some point, you may be working on targeting just one of those three areas. But I see so much overlap between the three. And I see like, almost like rapid succession. Yeah, there are um, sort of prehearsal goals, like lower level goals, impulse control. That's something we work on with kindergartners. You know, we work on with preschool kids. Something like you think about the childhood game, Mother May I? That is an impulse control game. Blurting things out to peers or classmates. My, I have a, a three-year-old and three-year-olds are just like blurters by nature. So helping him learn, like, I'm having a conversation with this person, you can't jump in. That's an impulse control behavior. And we can then dial that up all the way through college. I know some adults that struggle there. Working memory, <laughs> when we tell our students, our little ones, what might we, we tell them? Uh, put on your shoes and then put on your coat. Well, they've got to remember two tasks and they have to remember, don't forget to put on your coat while they're putting on their shoes. That's a working memory task. In high school, we might have students that need to remember the complex math formula while they're using the math formula. And so a goal there, you know, write the formula down. A lot of my students don't think of that. They try and keep it in their head. Well, first write the formula and then fill in the blanks of the formula, and then solve for X. That's a skill that they didn't pick up along the way. So yeah, there are, I could go through all of them and we could talk all kinds of IEP goals, but that is why we have intervention specialists. And I help students think, I help parents like think about IEP goals a lot, but hopefully there's someone excellent in the school who's also advocating for your kid and helping come up with some really useful goals. Thank you so much, Jessica, for your time and your tips and just breaking down executive functioning in a manageable way. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. And, um, you know, I hope everyone has a a healthy and a safe and a non-crazy making rest of the academic year. And here's hoping that next year we don't all quite need such 
extraordinary executive functioning skills. Well, we'll be stronger for it if we do. (laughs) Yeah. Where can we find you? You mentioned you do coaching and professional development training. My website is www.ontrackacademiccoaching.com. And that's just all one word. And folks can find me there. My email address is there and everything. So ontrackacademiccoaching.com. And I would love to hear from people if you have questions or if you looking for professional development for your district or whatever. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Mindful Literacy Podcast. May you be inspired, energized, and share this love with those in your care. We are also grateful to have you as a part of our community. If you are enjoying the content in this podcast, please share this with your friends and colleagues. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please also take a moment to connect with us on Facebook, mindful.literacy.columbus, and on Instagram, mindful.literacy.cbus. We want to hear from you. What topics do you want to uncover next? Who is doing these amazing things on the field of education that we should be talking about in season three? Until next time, may you be happy, healthy, and at peace. Before we wrap things up, we want to mention one more way from anywhere in the world that you and your students can get involved with Mindful Literacy Columbus. For just $25 a month, you can become a patron member of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Yes, that's right. For less than the cost of a latte a week, you will become a champion for child literacy. And you have the opportunity to give directly back to kids in two ways. First, dues enable staff to grant right, fundraise, and build organizational awareness. Second, patron members are invited to contribute monthly to our publishing house, Beehive Press. The books that your students will curate will then be sold to generate even more scholarship money for your students. Beehive Press is an imprint of Mindful Literacy Columbus. Here is what patron members will get for their $25 per month. Submit one book by Kids for Kids for Beehive Press per month. Receive video lesson plans on how to engage kids in the writing process and PDF graphic organizers to help with the pre-writing process. It includes help with book layout, one-to-one final editing session, marketing, sales, and logistics of the book. Receive the proof of the book for free includes copyright and ISBN number. Each published book that is sold gives back to MLC. 50% goes to scholarships, 50% goes to the authors. To become a patron member, go to mindfulliteracypractice.org slash donate.